0: Brothers and sisters, welcome back to the XX Mormon podcast. Here today, uh, I am conducting. I almost forgot what word is used for that. I am conducting. I'm Elder Jackson. And of course, up on the stand here, we have Bishop Jensen, who, as always, is illustriously presiding over us in this Ward family. And of course, we also have a special guest today brother jacob welcome everybody to the podcast thank you welcome bishop so Jensen, brother if you want to
1: sorry, sorry. Jumped i jumped ahead of you
0: i want to i <coughs> want to formally turn the time over to you uh bishop
1: Jensen, thank you. the time is now yours thank you so uh brother jacob is our i don't our first real like professional guest um he is a uh a Clinical therapist or counseling therapist? Uh, registered psychologist. Registered psychologist. Okay. Got the terminology straight. So smartest person we've ever <laughs> had on the show. Um, <laughs> so he, you're going to bring a unique perspective, I think, just of, uh, you know, kind of with the, the psycho- psychological aspects, I think, of of processing your time in the church and your time out of the church. Um, yeah. So, to get going, why don't you just give us like a five-minute summary of your kind of your early life in the church? Uh, were you born and raised in the church? Did you go on a mission? Married in the temple? You know how? Definitely. How was your time in the church when you were growing up? Yeah, so I would say I was a very typical
2: Mormon in that I was born in the church, uh, baptized at eight, priesthood mission, married in the temple. Me, and my wife, we date knew each other i think it was like for 6 months before getting married in the temple uh right so that's a very i think typical mormon experience mm-hmm. uh but i think when we're looking at mormonism and we look at what is typical we're also talking about it's orthodox uh, it's not like i was super free with you know uh when i was a teenager let's try out drugs and alcohol like i never did that i I was so adamant, I won't even be tempted, right? So I never went to parties. Um, I avoid swearing, avoided R-rated movies. Uh, I even uh, didn't drink Coke or Pepsi, right? Just because, I know that's not the word of wisdom. So super orthodox. Yeah, super orthodox. Yeah. And and I think, reflecting back on it, I was because uh, my dad was uh, inactive for a few or quite a few years when he got married, he came back to church. And so it was a big part of his trauma and pain this time of, of leaving the church. Uh, my mom is a convert. Uh, and then my brother, older brother, as a teenager, he left the church and that just caused so much family drama. And so I was determined as a youth that I would make my parents happy by being super religious and super spiritual. And I was, and everybody loved it. Uh, It just reinforced that that was the only way I could belong. Um, But the sad part is, is that it never actually benefited me. It just kind of pushed me away further from the intimacy that I was really looking for. So I always joke, that's why I became a psychologist, uh, because I am insecure. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But that's like
0: a real thing is everybody says, oh man, you're such a good Mormon kid and you're doing everything right and look at you go, you must be so proud. There's like a real satisfaction that comes from that and it reinforces that uh, momentum that you get as a kid, right?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But what you're really looking for when you're trying to do those things is that uh in a psychological uh, terminology, that secure attachment—you want to have that safety, intimacy, emotional connection with people—and when you're trying to be this super religious youth, um, you don't get that pass. You have to be perfect all the time, and uh, and when it's reinforced by people, you start to condition that my worth is contingent on how spiritual I can be. Um, you know, and I remember there's a few times I tried to open up with like branch presidents and we we're in a small town. So like, these are people that either are your family or basically like family. And I would open up a few times to test the waters and they would shut you down really hard. Don't think like that. Don't mention that, you know, I was like, okay, cause I don't want to be branded as, um, an apostate like my brother was right. Cause this guy is, is next to the devil in terms of his authenticity,
1: right? Like, uh, so I was got to be a good little Mormon boy. What, <laughs> what were the kinds of things you test the waters with when you're a teenager talking to the branch president? Uh, like when it came to pornography, uh, right? So there's
2: so much demonizing around this normal normal experience for youth, like to be exposed to it, be curious about it, um, and they say uh, in their I can't remember if it was true to the faith or for the strength of youth. One of those that I studied religiously again. Um, it's that anything that arouses sexual feelings is pornography. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anytime you feel this normal experience, that's pornography. So I remember once trying to open up about that and just like, do I have a problem? Is this an issue? And just being shut down and it's like, don't, don't talk about that. And then the question, well, do you look at pornography? And so I like, didn't know how to answer that and I wanted to be good. So I was like, no. And they're like, good, good. Right, you know, like oh, okay, message received. I will never talk about it. Mm-hmm. But a big part, if I can add to this, there was a guy. He had passed away before I really grew up and knew him. But he died of cancer. He, uh, uh, but before five years before, he came out and he uh, had committed adultery or something like that. And so he was excommunicated. And this was like a really important guy and presidencies and stuff. So now. Five years later, he gets cancer and he dies. And my dad would tell me this story as evidence of why we needed to be righteous. And all I paired with this was, if I ever admit sins, I'm going to get cancer and die. So Mm -hmm. I was just deadly afraid of being imperfect in any way. And I remember when I turned 30, being genuinely surprised that I was still
1: alive. Because I had been conditioned my whole life that I would die young. So the... Okay, so the fear of dying early or being cursed somehow for leaving the church that stuck with you till you were thirty. Yeah, definitely. Wow. And that's right. I was still in the church at thirty, right? Right. So. Wow. Okay. So that's <laughs> I, that's I, I intense. was. I mean, like that's like I a was... really
0: <laughs> serious, intense um, way of thinking. So, Bishop, you go ahead, and then I want to get more into like
1: how you worked through that like i was terrified of getting possessed Mm. until my 30s and funny enough actually we're playing cards with my in-laws and uh my wife starts saying we should do a seance just to kind of get a rise out of my mother-in-law and she was legitimately like no that invites satan and you can't even joke about that and and my mother-in-law's in in her 60s yeah
2: I remember, could I share a story, a Mm. mission story? Oh, yeah. Um, I, uh, on my mission, falling asleep, had a hallucination of uh, a man standing by my bed. And I was paralyzed in this. uh, This is called catatonia. And so I wasn't able to do anything. I just was looking at this guy uh, staring at me. Um, And I had paired that to be the devil. And uh, this actually is a real thing that people can hallucinate while they're falling asleep. Mm-hmm. Uh so but I was I was so sure that this was uh the devil and so I went to my mission president and he confirmed that <laughs> and uh and he's like you've had experiences with the dark side and and he gave me a blessing and all this um and then later on as I'm studying psychology and I had held on to like this is real you can be possessed and stuff and I was so afraid of it I wouldn't even talk about the experience but then learning psychology I'm like oh this, this can actually happen to people. It's, yeah. It's more normal. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I
0: mean, what you're talking about, like these, these things getting in your head and that even you as a 30 year old, you're thinking like, how am I still alive? Like I'm a sinner. I must've been cursed by now. Right. Uh, like it sticks in your head. I left. Uh, I, I kind of stopped believing almost seven years ago. And I left a year and a half ago. And I like the other day I had one of those like sleep paralysis demon things moments, right? Where you're kind of half asleep, but you see something standing over your bed. And I had to like talk myself down. I was like, oh, no, this is the reckoning. Like they're coming for me, (laughs) you know, because I left the church. And then I had to talk myself down and be like, no, no, it's okay. This is like a thing that happens. And I had to like calm myself down <laughs> because it it sticks in your head. It's like it's like leeches on your brain. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's deep. So tell us more about your experience like working through everything that kind of got a hold of your mind, including this idea that you're gonna be cursed somehow if you sin.
2: Yeah, so th- this is really interesting that we're going here. Um, I so I became honestly a workaholic. It was like nonstop work, 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 work. Uh, whenever I would study uh, to give a talk in church, like that was always the input that you were getting. Right? Uh, the mm-hmm. definition of discipleship is to do better um, constantly. Like, got to do better. You know, we're we're never okay with where we are. We got to be perfect, and all these kind of things. And so I really bought into that idea that if I did this hard work that it would be fulfilled and again as a youth I would print off quotes from the prophets about these kinds of promises um, and promises like you know if you do this the devil will have no power over you mm-hmm. and so I took them for their word and of course none of it actually works <laughs> but you know you it was always considered like is this just the trial of my faith right so you know I'll just keep doing it. I'll keep doing it and uh, what I found was that I burnt out, right? I, I lost the emotional connection to life, to enjoyment of the work that I was doing, to connection with family. And it really was this matter of like, I'm just waiting to die. And like my dad always had this kind of sentiment, and like you talk about this, of, uh, you know, if we die then at least we died like a good person. We're going to go to heaven, okay. mm-hmm. right? So it was just kind of like, it's worth it to die. Um, as a side note, uh, and and trigger warning for anyone with was suicide, uh, but before I turned eight years old, I had the idea to kill myself be, so that I could go to heaven, right? And mm-hmm. I wasn't suicidal. I wasn't actually attempting in, in some kind of gruesome way or mentally, you know, suffering or something like that. But but, you know, asking my parents about this, I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, I have to die. And I was totally happy with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was like, this is a great idea. Yeah. Um, and my mom, I just remember her coming in and being like, what are you doing? And me just genuinely being like, I'm just trying to go to heaven. <laughs> right? Yeah. But now I
1: realize that's kind of messed up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. For a but that's the
0: logical conclusion. Conclusion.
1: <laughs> of I,
0: Mormon theology.
1: I can remember yeah. asking my mom to tell me about, like, when I was born. And I had to I got stuck, so I had to get pulled out with forceps, and I was like, oh, yeah. "Oh, that sounds dangerous, Mom. could I have died?" And she's like, "I guess if the doctor wasn't there and we're out on like a farm or something like that, yeah, you could have died." And I said, "I wish I would have died, Mom, so then I could have gone straight to the celestial kingdom, mm-hmm. And she was kind of yeah. like, doesn't know how to answer that because I'm right, yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 it's really sad.
2: So you asked how I worked through it. Um, Again, still in the church. I can't remember if COVID had started. COVID kind of was like the time where I started experimenting because like we're away from church and you start to realize Mm -hmm. how much better life is. But um, uh, Gabor Matei has a book called When the Body Says No. And I haven't read it. And so I was like, well, let me look on YouTube. And sure enough, he has a lecture on the book and it's an hour long. So I was like, let me just like do this. So me and my wife listened to it as we were driving a Cardston, and I was weeping because for the first time I had realized that I didn't value my life. And I was listening to a professional who said, it's okay to stop. Like these are signs that your body is saying no, and it's okay to stop. You still have value. And I didn't realize until that moment that I didn't have to die. I, I really thought I did. I thought that was my fate, but I realized no, it's okay to actually love yourself and to be fulfilled and you no. Know, but I was so sure before that. So then I just had to work myself to death.
1: Like the suicidal ideation was coming from like just burnout on trying to be the perfect Mormon. Well, in my whole life, perfect, Mormon, everyth- perfect ev- everything, perfect everything,
2: right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and like, like again. Like the suicidal ideation is it's a bit different, but, um, like I remember I was going to propose to my wife who I did love. Right. But like getting married in six months is really fast. Mm -hmm. And, but you got to do it. It was the right thing to do. Um, kind of a thing. Oh, I'm going to pause. Oh, there you go. You're back. You're good. Okay. Um, but i was so afraid to propose to my wife that i didn't and my whole plans went out the window and i remember driving home just weeping in my car praying to yeah. heavenly father please kill me please kill me mm-hmm. um you know and i didn't want to die like there was no uh, experimenting with that in any kind of way um i did eventually propose to her right and and we've been happily married for 10 years but like there was just this thing of like if you could just take me away like Mm -hmm. I would really appreciate that Mm -hmm. (laughs) His life
1: sucks
2: (laughs) yeah
0: Bishop do you have a question?
1: yeah I was just going to say I like I had to do an organizational behavior course which is not like the same as psychology Mm -hmm. but one thing we talked about was this concept of the internal locus of control yeah And so it's like how much people feel they're in charge of their life versus how much people feel their life is determined by external factors, or at least correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong, right? But we had to do a test to assess our own own internal locus of control. And mine was almost completely external. Hmm. And I was going through, I was developing like what I didn't realize was an anxiety disorder around the same time. But I remember looking at my results and being absolutely shocked but i remember as i was answering the questions i would always be thinking well this all kind of depends on what the spirit tells me or what god wants me to do Mm -hmm. i had no sense of my ability to make my own choices like it was everything came down to what a prompting would tell me and and then i looked at the result and i was like i i couldn't like i couldn't believe it but then i was like something's wrong about the way i'm thinking about life like everything being outside of my control. And at the same time I'm getting chest pains and, uh, and always being on edge and getting anxiety disorder. Cause I feel like my whole life's spiraling out of control. Um, so I yeah. certainly identify with what you're talking about of, of um, this trying to be perfect meeting up to the standard that is, it's not even the standard or the goals you're setting for yourself. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so how, as you continue to like work through this and as you got this idea of like, it's okay to say no and COVID happens. And I think that was like a big eye opener for a lot of people like, oh, I'm okay without this. Um, How how did you continue to work through that and then eventually get to the point where you're like, oh, like I'm done. I can let this go.
2: Yeah, because it it, it came down to a matter of life and death, really, right? Like this, it wasn't a matter of preference. It wasn't like, I don't like going to church because it's boring. I had already proven my whole life that I was willing to do anything for the Lord, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so it came to this point of like, it's sacrificing my life or not. And like I said, I, I came to this realization that my life did have value. And so... I found a lot of strength in that, found a lot of peace, kind of just starting to explore what made me happy uh, for the first time, started waking up and saying, what do I want to do today, as opposed to following through rigid rules. Again, like I read the Book of Mormon every single day. I was doing at least a half hour study of scriptures or general conference talks, Um, even like during COVID, like even during years where I'm just like, Mormonism doesn't work, Even when I, like, decided to leave the church, (laughs) I was still paying tithing. (laughs) Like, it was just so hard to, like, get cut. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Um, But I just started experimenting with what made me happy. And I saw how much better of a person I was becoming uh, by not attending church, by being able to actually listen to my wife for, like, the first time ever. Because, you know, what would happen before is wife, say, feels anxiety. I'll give you a priest a blessing. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. And you'd be like, God wants you to know, chill F out. (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, You know, and you're like, I'm such a great husband. I have the priesthood, Um, (laughs) you know, and now now I sit with my wife.
1: I can actually do that. mm -hmm. You know, I couldn't do that before. Like, what do you mean by just sit with her, like just listen or talk about her day and. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Whatever it is, I don't feel that need that I have to fix it. I'm able to emotionally regulate as
2: she tells me things. And sometimes some of those things involve me, right? Like, did I do something that was hurtful? Like, we're really able to externalize that and strengthen our marriage. is so beautiful. But when Mormonism was at play, you know, we would try to pray these things away, pray away negative feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, and like we go to bed at night and like for years, I just, I was the only one who said the nighttime prayer. My mm-hmm. wife just didn't want to. And never asked her about her feelings. I'm just like, I'll just pray. (laughs) I'm such a good (laughs) husband. (laughs) Volunteering to pray, you know, like stupid.
0: That is interesting on, on the subject as a bit of a tangent uh, of priesthood blessings and the way that as a, a man, like your voice comes through in that. And my, my grandma Uh, had a bunch of priesthood blessings from my stepfather and my mom records every priesthood blessing that any of us have Mm -hmm. ever gotten and that she's ever gotten and that her mom's ever gotten. And so because of this, my aunt, who is not a member who left the church as a teenager, she read through these priesthood blessings. And she told me the other day that she just hears my stepdad talking. She doesn't like there there's nothing magical about it it's just a man telling a woman to relax and that oh everything's (laughs) gonna be fine and that god won't take you sooner than your time and stuff like that and it's just kind of when, when you're in it it feels like there's so much meaning to it and then when you get out it's like oh i guess that's like nothing okay
2: yeah. I don't feel the need to do priests of blessings anymore or to receive them.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no yeah. And it sounds like I'm not bitter. It's
2: just it's like not God.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like it sounds like you've developed better ways to communicate with your wife uh, through, through this, through just conversation.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we're like, did you have some? You mentioned kind of before we got on air that you were an apologist or you, you amateur apologist. So yes. were you struggling with like questions about the church for for a while before you just kind of broke around COVID? Was was? Can you tell us just a bit about your time as an apologist and
2: kind of how? Yeah. So I so I worked for the church uh, for two years and. So I'd say that's when I transitioned into being this apologist because now you're forced into the, uh, what's the word contraindication that is psychology and Mormonism. That is, they do not fit together at all. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of confusing and you're like, I've got to make this work somehow. And so I totally ignored like all the typical shelf breaker items about the truth claims of the church. I'm like, Whatever. Hey, Joseph Smith married a 14-year-old. I'm sure God knew what was going on. Um, I'm going to just focus on the doctrine of Christ, hmm. faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost, and the end, right? Focus on every talk I gave. I started it with, this has to come back to the atonement of Jesus Christ. All things are but appendages to them, quoting Joseph Smith. Um, so that's, that's the apologist approach that I took with psychology, that there was healthiness in this. And what I found was that we were constantly in working for the church, counteracting everything that the prophets and apostles had to say. Hmm. Every time there was a general conference, people would be coming in with, that was the worst thing I was ever told. Right. And we'd have to be like, well, you know, that's just for like the general population, but for you definitely don't listen to that. Mm -hmm. And it just, became kind of weird that we're constantly having to correct the prophet prophets who are speaking for God. Mm-hmm. Right. And so my apologist approach was just like, let's just focus on mental health. And sure, the church is going to provide the best mental health out there. And you kept studying it and studying it and finding out, my goodness, we actually have some of the worst mental health rates out there, suicide rates. Uh, Um, people prescribe medication, uh, marriages falling apart. Like there is nothing that Mormonism is providing. Like these promises fall completely flat Mm -hmm. and I would have been okay with blaming people for that. Right? Like you just didn't have enough faith. You weren't fully committed. You were sinning. And that's why it didn't work. But now that I'm working for the church, I'm seeing these people and I'm hearing their stories. I'm hearing about how my dad was a bishop and he used to beat the crap out of us. Right. I'm hearing how this person sexually abused me, this bishop, this state president. Um, you know, I'm just like, this doesn't make sense. Like, how can I tell these people to go back to a bishop when that's what abused them? Mm-hmm. Right. Um And just the saddest stories were coming from Mormonism and it it just, it wasn't okay. And I, I came to this conclusion that I could not be an ethical psychologist and be a Orthodox Mormon at the same time. I had to give on one of those. And so then I dropped the apologist approach and I was like, I'll just become nuanced. I believe the church is true, but I don't agree with the church. And so I would tell members like, I don't care. You know, if you're gay, if you're cheating on people, if you do drugs, like I'm committed to your health. Right. But I still believe the church is true. I still pay 10 percent. And, you know, that's going towards such wonderful
1: causes. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so what what was like the major ethical dilemma that you were running into? Uh, like,
2: OK, probably the biggest one would be around LGBTQ plus people. Right. Okay. okay. So in working for the church, we toe the line because you cannot come out and say we do not support gay people, right? Or gay marriage or anything like that. Because you'll be shut down. Right. Mm-hmm. So what we say is we are committed to traditional values. Okay. Right? So now you come in and you say, I'm gay, I want to explore this part of myself, or I'm genderqueer, or I'm anything. Um, and we just say, we're not specialized in this, so you'd probably be better off going somewhere else, which is what you're supposed to do ethically, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, if you come to me and you're like, I have schizophrenia, ethically, I'm supposed to say I'm not competent in this area. I can't help you go somewhere else. So it is okay to say that. But the reason why we're saying it is because we do not support these people, right? It's part of the whole process you have to have a temple recommend working for the church and so i just i remember working with gay clients and them just being like this is garbage and i was stuck I'm like what Mm -hmm. do i do do i say you know go and live your life or not and i found that when i was encouraging people in their health and whatever that meant right if it was saying hey you masturbate that's okay Right. I mean, we want to look at if this is causing harm, If it's compulsive, like it's okay. Um, That from the church's side, they were not okay with that. Hmm. Right. And I'm like, that's, that's not good. And I felt so two faced because I'm going out into my other professional life and I'm surrounded by these amazing people who are gay. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, I pretend to like you here. And then I go and I work for the church and I demonize it. Mm -hmm. Right. And it like just the conversations behind closed doors are so sickening. And I had those with bishops because I'd consult with bishops every day. And the things that bishops actively said about their
1: members are honestly horrific. Like it's just. Yeah. Do you have anything general, a general kind of comment you'd feel comfortable sharing or. Yeah. Cause you, you don't want to, confidentiality or anything just like
2: generally just talking about how bad people were you know it's her fault if she would just stop whining this and this and it's like she's in an abusive situation like what's going on here bishop right uh, you know this idea that mental health just totally revolved around building skills because the church is never to blame right for mental mm-hmm. health so they, they can't comprehend it they're just like they just need to do more church Right. And I'm like, actually, you know, they have social anxiety calling them to speak or give that, um have that calling where they speak is not helpful. Like we do want to challenge them, but it's not helping them. Mm-hmm. And they're like, the Lord qualifies whom he calls or whatever. Uh. <laughs> right. And it's like, you're making this worse. Right. And just and like these bishops as people, I believe, were good people, but they are not counselors and they mm-hmm. were trying to do counselors work and they're making it worse.
1: Hmm. I re- we had a, we had a guy we baptized in the YSA ward that I was in and he, um, like he was a bit of an odd duck and he hundred percent, did not want to pray in public or speak in public. And the Bishop kept pushing him and pushing him to say the opening prayer or the closing prayer. And, um, Finally, he said, OK, fine, I'll do it. He got up to say the closing prayer and he just said, amen. And he went and sat back down. <laughs> and, and so like we end up with this kind of outburst. And uh, I think he's walking away. Everybody's kind of in shock because all he did was walk up to the podium, said amen. And he's just kind of kind of shouting like I never wanted to pray or something like that. Like, <laughs> this is what I wanted to do. And and so we have this outburst and and this poor convert is kind of looking like a weirdo because the Bush, Bishop pushed him so hard with that, that same attitude and mentality you're talking about when really it's like, he should have just asked somebody else like this. Didn't make church a positive experience for him. He starts becoming socially ostracized because of it. And it's all because the Bishop's a dickhead.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. It sounds like there was a big, uh, lack of respect of boundaries, um,
2: Oh, yeah. The church doesn't believe in boundaries. God doesn't believe in boundaries. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So like you're trying to make this work, you're doing this tightrope act uh, where you're trying to help people as an ethical psychologist. But then also it sounds like the church kind of holds you back from fully helping the, the client. So at what point were you like, I'm done, like I can't? Work in this environment anymore or support this. Yeah.
2: And I didn't want to admit my own issues with that because mm-hmm. I was so dependent on the church and I didn't believe in myself um, as a counselor that I'd be able to be successful in my work unless I worked for the church. So I was actually applying for Oh, a job. I did, oh like, go ahead. Yeah. Why on earth did you believe that? Because I'd been conditioned that, again, my worth was contingent as the church saw me. And so I became, like, afraid of outside information.
1: So you had to – is it because therapy – like, didn't Boyd K. Packer say, like, the enemies of the church are intellectuals, therapists, and feminists? Like, is that – is it because of your line of work that you chose that you felt like, if I'm going to do this right, I have to work for the church? Otherwise, I'm an enemy of the church? Or Well, I knew that I couldn't be an Orthodox Mormon
2: and work for another organization. right. Right. So I went and worked for a nonprofit after the church. And now, lo and behold, I'm working with majority uh, uh, LGBTQ plus people. And for the first time now working with people who are non-binary, people who are trans. And I'm like, I have no experience. And as I'm reading, like how to work with these people, what's the research say, my gut was just twisting because I'm like, this is so contrary to the church. And like it is this is what I was afraid of I was like, how do I go here and say, Hey, it's okay to be trans, but then I go back to church and be like, But it's actually not okay, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I was like, That doesn't make sense. That's not the kind of psychologist that I want to be. Mm-hmm. And I remember working with this one guy uh who was transitioning to female. And so he or sorry, oh my god, see so this is one thing again, like we don't we don't talk about pronouns in the church, right? It's, yeah. it's uh, so I, I catch myself sometimes with ignorant language. Uh, she uh, was transitioning and she was wearing all women's clothes, women's makeup, but also had a beard. Right. Very manly face. Mm-hmm. And and honestly, I could say, like, you look ridiculous. Right. In the in the from the normative Mormon conservative kind of box. I'm like, this is this is so different. And talking to this person, all I could feel was just love and empathy for her, mm-hmm. right? I'm like, you are one of the most amazing people I've ever met on this planet, right? And, and that was kind of a wake-up call for me. I'm just like, something is off. Like, how could I be feeling the Spirit so strongly for this person, you know? And so then I started to think like, well, what does Christ, what would Christ do? And I'm just like. Christ would be here, not at LDS Family Services. <laughs> <laughs> like, like it just, and like I was starting to see the world. Like I didn't
1: realize how sheltered I really was. You know. Yeah. Um. So, so at this point in time, when you're working at this not-for-profit, are you, you're still active in the church? Oh yeah, Word. still 100% active. Temple recommend.
2: Serve and speaking, cleaning the temple. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I clean you the temple, then do a session. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. Uh, so you um, it ridiculous. So you were working for LDS Family Services. You run into this ethical dilemma that prompts you to go work for the not-for-profit. But you're still a TBM. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to get the timeline in order. And then, uh, did, have you ever read the book Animal Farm? No okay no there's just there's this one character that's a horse and his motto is always like I'll, i will work harder and then he ends up working himself to death so as you keep telling me these stories i just keep getting reminded of this horse and animal farmer keeps working harder till he dies of exhaustion Yeah, yeah. like we there's, had a picture oh go ahead yeah i was just gonna there's nothing in this world even when i was as active as i could have possibly been that would make me want to clean the temple and then do a session in the temple <laughs>
2: Oh man, yeah. Uh, I was saying though, we had a picture on our mission. I can't remember what the phrase under it, but it was from one of the apostles. I believe he served, served in one of the Polynesian islands. Uh, but anyways, it was about working harder, and it had a
1: picture of a horse. Okay, <laughs> so it's exactly <laughs> what he said, which is like mentality. Like Mormons don't read books, because if any Mormon had read a book, they would have read Animal Farm, and they would have known like you can't. Do this thing with the horse that works itself to exhaustion, and use a, the horse hmm. as a symbol of working too hard. But Mormons don't read literature,
0: or right? they read yeah. them and miss the point.
1: <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yep. Sorry, that's my two-second rant there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, didn't mean to, to. So, okay, so you've you've left LDS Family Services, but you're still a TBM. Now you're working at a not-for-profit. And so your, your route of apologetics was different from what we commonly think of because your, your apologetics are, are trying to marry up psychology with Mormonism. That's not working. And so then what ends up happening? Like, how does the whole thing fall apart? Yeah, so
2: I'm working for this nonprofit, and I'm still doing all the TBM stuff, so I'm burning out. And right. Uh, I remember my supervisor who's not a member, right. Mm. <laughs> you know, uh, and I, I, I came just to see like really trust her and value her. And I'm, uh, saying how I was struggling. Um, and like I, I was deeply struggling. Like at this point I was non-coherent. Like I was not functioning at all. Um, like I, couldn't think like I couldn't exist I couldn't watch tv shows without having panic attacks like it was so bizarre like I was just going downhill I'm still tbm at this time right and uh my supervisor said to me uh you're done and I was like oh no like I can still work I can still do my job really well because like I was doing my job really well Mm -hmm. (laughs) because that's what I worked so hard at right and she's just like nope you're done you are not fit to practice. You have to take three months off and take care of yourself. And I kid you not, it was the first time anyone in my life had actually looked out for my well-being. Wow. Because I, I, you know, lots of people knew, bishops knew, mission presidents knew, all these people knew um, that I was struggling you know, in different ways. And the answer was always to do more. And for the first time, I had someone actually care about my well-being. And I just remember crying because I'm like, and I tried so hard. I was like, no, let me work. Let me work. And she's just like, no, you're done. Right. And I was like, how am I going to survive financially? Right. Mm -hmm. And all this, but then it's just too bad. You know, you got to quit.
1: So how did your, like you said, you were performing really well at work. How did your supervisor identify that you were not fit to practice?
2: Because of how I was doing in my personal life, right? Because I I wasn't sleeping because I was angry. Um, You know, just, again, having panic attacks when I'd watch TV shows. um, Because I was having panic attacks about like, oh, what if this person is like a sexual abuser or something like that, right? In real life. And, you know, Mm -hmm. and I was just like, I couldn't trust anyone. And and I was just just deteriorating. Um, I was working actively with my bishop. And he was, he's an amazing guy, of course, right. But like, he's not a counselor. And I was going, again, I, hopefully, I don't talk about suicide too much. But this is the time in my life, where I transitioned to actual suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. And I would leave his meetings, and we'd meet for hours, I'd leave his meetings, and it would be, you know, dark, Winter roads, and I would just drive out to Kananaskis and I would drive as fast as I could, and I would I would hope to die, right? And I would just drive for hours, and like a maniac, it was psychotic. Um, mm-hmm. That's how I left Bishop's meetings, you know, and I but I would show up for work the next day, <laughs> like it was ridiculous, you yeah. know. Um, and my supervisor recognized it. she had to look beyond if I was doing my job well or not and how
1: I was doing as an individual. Um, so this come about yeah, like so. just your conversations with your supervisor about how you're doing. I'm like, I'm just interested to know how does, yeah. how does she find out how you're doing? Um, oh, it's, it's just what you do. You have weekly
2: supervision and stuff. And she's just a very personal right. uh, supervisor. So, you know, we talked about personal life and and her goal was for me to be, uh you know happy healthy successful person it wasn't about a cog in the wheel kind of a thing right mm-hmm. it was a very personal relationship it was the
1: kind of person that i needed in my life honestly and i hadn't had that previously so you finally have somebody who's looking out for your well-being you take the time off and then that's coincidentally around when covid starts yeah exactly Okay. Yeah. So it was good timing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, everything was like
2: shutting down and stuff, and so as COVID is driving everyone crazy, I felt great. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm finally relaxed. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And it's good.
0: I kind of so this call, Google Meet only lets us meet for an hour at a time, on the like on the personal version. Uh, so I kind of think maybe if you've still got more time to chat brother jacob if maybe we split this episode in two i can send a new link and we can pick back up uh on like a next episode
2: yeah that works for me yeah perfect yeah if you guys want to hear more (laughs) yeah oh yeah yeah Yeah,
0: i i especially want to hear and maybe on the next episode hearing about like the growth that's come post leaving like you covid happens you're on this break you're realizing you you can be happy without the church and uh, and the growth that's come out of that uh if we're good to go for another i'm good yeah awesome okay then with that we'll close here abruptly on a cliffhanger tune in n- next week uh when we talk more about growth and uh yeah being 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 done with the church uh so in the name of jesus christ amen
1: amen